Thanks very much, Karen. And uh, do please uh, keep your Bibles uh, open if you have your Bibles with you. We're going to be look at, looking at Jeremiah chapters 24 to 29, uh, bits of those chapters as we work our way through, as well as a num- number of other passages, um, which will all also be on the screen for you as we, as we look at this topic uh, today, this part of God's Word um, As we prepare to do that, let's pray. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word, uh, in the Bible, you teach us about yourself. You teach us uh, about us as uh, your people and you teach us about uh, your grace and goodness to us. We praise you uh, that we can learn of you and your word and of all that you've done. We pray that as we do so this morning, you'll help us to understand what we read and help us to uh, understand how we uh, might be growing as uh, followers of Jesus because of what we read in your word. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The human heart is a powerful thing. When we talk about our motives and desires in life, the thing uh, that really motivates us and drives our actions and behaviours, what we talk about is so often uh, the heart, the deep-seated desires that we can't help but follow because we're human. Uh, So often you hear the phrase, follow your heart. Uh, That's the modern mantra rolled out in popular culture, uh, culture, movies and music. Uh, Our heart's desire Uh, It should be the thing that determines our actions in life, and that's seen as a a good thing, as the best thing for any person. Uh, And we don't uh, even really need to be told to follow our hearts, do we? It it just comes as naturally to us as breathing. The 16th century English reformer and Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, uh, he uh, penned a well-known description of the human condition. I'm quoting uh, Christian historian Ashley Null here. He says, according to Cranmer's anthropology, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. The mind doesn't direct the will. The mind is actually captive to what the will wants, and the will itself, in turn, is captive to what the heart wants. Our hearts, uh, what we desire, uh, this is the main determiner of our actions. Uh, And if this is true... Well, when it comes to the problem of sin in every human heart, simply following our hearts will spell big trouble for all people. Uh, Jeremiah has said a lot about the heart so far in his book, and we'll read a lot more before we're finished. A number of times he tells the people to circumcise their hearts. Only a heart devoted to God and you will put the people of Judah on the right path. Uh, And for much of what Jeremiah describes, the human heart is beyond hope. This is certainly true of the people of, of Judah, as God promises the judgment that is coming. Uh, the people have stubborn, rebellious hearts. The, we read in Jeremiah at one point, the human heart is deceitful and beyond cure. Sin engraved with an iron tool on their hearts. This is how God describes his people and their hearts. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says that God searches the heart and gives us what our deeds deserve. And for a sinful heart, that is a terrifying thought indeed. Uh, 
So what hope do we have? What hope do the people of Judah have uh, amidst the sorrow of life and in the face of judgment for sin that Jeremiah so thoroughly describes? What hope can there be for human beings given the state of our sinful hearts? Well, uh, even in a book that labours the punishment for sin and the judgment of God at, at such length as Jeremiah does, uh, so that it can even get hard to read and, and a little depressing at times, even here, as we've already seen a number of times, there are hints of hope. And there is, we'll see today, very definite hope beyond sorrow. Uh, these central chapters of the book give rise to a more hopeful outlook. Uh, Jeremiah's mission that we read in chapter 1, his, his commission from God, is, is, is roughly uh, two-thirds tearing down and one-third building up. We've come to something of a turning point in the book. From here on in, we'll hear more about the planting and building up. Uh, that, uh, that hope that comes after the, uh, the judgment and the tearing down. In chapter 24, God describes the people of Judah as either good or bad figs. Uh, some are not even edible, but others are ripe and juicy, just like you want figs to be. Uh, have a look at a few verses here in chapter 24. Chapter 24, verses 5 to 7. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Like these good figs, I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. My eyes will watch over them for their good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. Now here we begin to see quite clearly what we've already had a hint of, that well, there is hope of return after exile, that the, the people will go from sorrow to hope. There is hope beyond the sorrow of judgment and exile. Uh, judgment will come. <laughs> And for some of the people of Judah, it will be God's last word. But for others, God will give them what they need to return to him. He will give them a heart to follow him. We've had 23 chapters hearing about how, uh, Judah's inability to follow God because of their sinful hearts. Now God promises to do something about it. God, in his grace, will give his people what they need to return to him with all their heart. Now, of course, for there to be hope beyond sorrow, that means that the sorrow of judgment must first be endured. Uh, Judah have gone too far to avoid punishment from God for their sin. These uh, central chapters of Jeremiah mix the two aspects together. Chapter 25 onwards has uh, more to say again uh, about the coming judgment as Jeremiah boldly speaks God's word to the kings and the people of Judah. And Jeremiah's been by this point, has been doing this for a long time. In chapter 25, Jeremiah addresses Jehoiakim, and by this time he's been preaching God's messages to the people for 23 years with no discernible change in the behaviour of the people. 23 years is a long time to be ignored. Uh, Joe gets annoyed having to call our family to dinner more than two or three times. And to our shame, it often takes longer than that to respond, but... 
What about 23 years? We'd starve to death. Uh, the people have been ignoring Judah, uh, Jeremiah, ignoring God's word for 23 years, all of which reinforces the fact that God's judgment will arrive. And by none other, he says in chapter 25, by none other than his servant, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Have a read of a few verses of chapter 25 here, verses 8 to 11. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make, an, make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. God is bringing his servant Nebuchadnezzar to enact his punishment on the people to bring his judgment. Now, the term servant is used for a very few in the Old Testament. Uh, the nation of Israel uh, at a number of points is called God's servant. Uh, Isaiah speaks of the servant, uh, which is a prophecy of the arrival of Jesus. <laughs> but here, the enemy of God's people is called his servant. Uh, and it's in a, a different sense, of course, uh, as we think about what this means. Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant because he is doing God's will. He's bringing the punishment God has determined for a rebellious people. But he's a servant that will also be punished by God because his actions are also evil. Uh, God is sovereign. His judgment of Judah may involve Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. But from their perspective, they aren't acting in service of God. They're unwittingly doing his will. They're just expanding their evil empire. <laughs> God is sovereign over both Judah and Babylon. And in the end, as Jeremiah describes more than once, both will receive punishment for their sin. And in the end, not only Babylon and Judah, but, but God's judgment extends uh, to all the surrounding nations. Uh, a number of times we get uh, pretty comprehensive lists of the nations that will be punished and no one's left out. Uh, they've all ignored God, all sinned and worshipped idols, ignored the one true God, and so all will be made to drink the cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah preaches that message from God in the second half of chapter 25. God is a God who deals with sin, and he does so in anger, in wrath. This is God's consistent action in the face of sin. Uh, the Apostle Paul says as much in, in Romans chapter 1, Romans 1, verses 18 to 20. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. 
Paul goes on in that passage to describe the idolatry of the people taking aspects of God's creation and making idols of them as if they were gods. Uh, idolatry is one of the, the key sins of, of Judah in Jeremiah's day and it describes one of the main ways people reject God today too. Worshipping things in the creation rather than the creator, giving greater worth in our lives to anything or anyone but God. And we do this when it is plain <laughs> that God exists and that he is worthy of our praise and worship. Uh, Judah as a people knew this uh, about God better than anyone at the time, any of the other nations. The people of Judah knew this and yet they persisted in rejecting God. And so Jeremiah preaches God's coming judgment in the temple court. Uh, as we've seen before, uh, the people don't want to hear this message. Jeremiah's life is threatened no one wants to hear bad news, to be told that uh, they're going to be judged. And the reaction of the people is, is more evidence of their hard hearts. We need to kill this man. Do you hear what he is saying? <laughs> in a surprising twist, in chapter 26, uh, Jeremiah is defended by some of the elders of Judah. The prophets and priests and kings aren't doing much, but maybe there are some elders who still believe God's word. Have a look at Chapter 26 from verse 17. Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of people, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Zion will be ploughed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or, or anyone else in Judah put him to death? Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favour? And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against them? We are about to bring a terrible disaster on ourselves. And it's good to see the elders defending Jeremiah. Good to hear them acknowledge that he is perhaps speaking God's word, as, as Micah did. Uh, although their defence of Jeremiah is also probably largely self-serving. Uh, let's leave him alive and, and see what God will do. Maybe he won't do what he, he says he's going to do. Maybe he'll relent like he did in Micah's day. Uh, sadly, while they're talking about Jeremiah's words uh, and, and while even agreeing that this could be God's word, they are deaf to what God is actually telling them to do through the prophet Jeremiah. In the end, the judgment that both Micah and Jeremiah prophesied will come and the people haven't really formed a better opinion of God's prophets through all this. Uh, ironically, in the next few verses, we read of Uriah, a prophet who was killed for preaching exactly the same message as Jeremiah. There's no real rhyme or reason. Uh, the rebellion of God's people is still clearly evident. As we... Moving to chapter 27, we, we have an account from some years after the events of chapter 26. We have Zedekiah in charge, the, the last king of Judah, a puppet king put in place by Nebuchadnezzar after the first deportation. He's, Zedekiah's gathered leaders of the surrounding nations, a kind of G7 of its day, all discussing whether they can take a stand together against Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Jeremiah arrives wearing a yoke. Uh, as he's instructed to do by God. And he says to them all, resistance is futile. 
you're all going down. Uh, to put it in modern language, don't join the rebellion. This isn't Star Wars. You cannot defeat the Empire. Follow along with me there in verse, uh, chapter 27, verses 5 to 8. Chapter 27 from verse 5. With my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it, and I give it to anyone I please. Now I will give all your countries into the hands of my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes. Then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. If, however, any nation or kingdom will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, or bow its neck under his yoke, I will punish that nation with the sword, famine and plague, declares the Lord, until I destroy it by his hand. Again, we see uh, that God's assurance uh, that his judgment is coming. There's no way to avoid it, whether they try to defeat Nebuchadnezzar or to submit to him. God's judgment is coming. You must be yoked to Nebuchadnezzar for a time, God says. And if you rebel, you'll be punished. The false prophets are telling Zedekiah and the people not to worry. Look, it'll only be a couple of years and then they'll get all their people and all their gold back. This is what the false prophets are telling the people. Uh, Chapter 28 has an account uh, of this, uh, a rare detailed account of the false prophets. The false prophet Hananiah. Uh, is speaking there in court and he breaks the yoke that Jeremiah is wearing and he announces that God will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar in two years. Uh, Within a matter of months, Hananiah dies. Uh, That yoke will be broken, but in God's time. (laughs) Uh, God is in charge of Judah, of Babylon, of all the nations. And God is making and will make this clear. Of course, God is still in charge today. God is still in control of all nations. Uh, As Christians, we know this. Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. God is in control. And we can thank God that he is because ultimately his plans for his people are good. Uh, The judgment God is bringing won't last forever. There is hope beyond sorrow. As we come to chapter 29, we come to the turning point uh, of the book where we read Jeremiah's letter to the exiles written to those who were taken in the first deportation, 10 years before the the, the final destruction of Jerusalem and and the exile. Uh, British theologian Christopher Wright says this about Jeremiah's letter. It was a letter in which Jeremiah begins the transformation of his message from uprooting and tearing down to building and planting, from judgment to hope. This letter in in chapter 29 uh, is a letter to a people who were thinking that they were the outcasts, Uh, people thinking that those left back in Jerusalem must be the ones that God favours. But actually it's the other way around. Jeremiah urges them, those uh, members of the initial deportation, he urges those exiles already living in Babylon, to consider themselves residents, not refugees. Uh, Have a read of the first part of the letter with me. Chapter 29, follow along here from verse 7, uh, from verse 4, sorry, 29 verse 4. 
This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Live and and live well, God says to the people. Grow, have families. Seek the prosperity of your new home, because then you will prosper. Why? Because God has a plan for their future. This, This exile, this punishment will not last forever Uh, the letter also urges the people to be visionaries not victims Uh, have a look at the next few verses of the letter with me Uh, chapter 29 from verse 8 yes this is what the lord almighty the god of israel says do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have they are prophesying lies to you in my name i have not sent them declares the lord This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. There's a very clear limit to the exile, not two years, uh, but 70 years. (laughs) Uh, That must have been both encouraging and disheartening for the exiles. Most of them hearing this letter read would not return to the land. But there would be a return. That's why they're to settle down and grow and prosper and, and they will seek God, which is the opposite of what Judah have been doing for generations. <laughs> you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Why can they seek God with all their heart? Because of what God's already promised to do, back in chapter 24, verse 7, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. For Judah, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. Uh, And that problem of the heart will be fixed by God. God is gracious. There is hope beyond sorrow. God will save his people. He'll give them what they need. He'll make it possible for, for them. Uh, to do what they can't do and make it possible for them to uh, know him. He'll give them a heart to know him. There's a verse in uh, the passage we just read in chapter 29 there uh, that features on many a fridge in Christian homes or on the back of the toilet door or even hanging in the hallway taking pride of place for For everyone to see with a neat frame and flowery border, it's posted on Facebook pages, blog posts, screensavers, quoted in motivational Christian living type books. It's verse 11. 
I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. It's a great verse, but before you put it up on the wall, (laughs) please note the context. Uh, For many Christians, it's taken far too sentimentally and it too easily promotes a prosperous and purpose-filled life for the Christian. Too easily has us thinking to ourselves, wow, God wants to prosper me. I must be pretty good. (laughs) God has wonderful hope and future for for my life. My life's going to be great. That's not what this verse is saying. Uh, It is an incredible promise from God to his people. And yes, we take part in the fulfillment of that promise as Christians today, but we've got to be very careful as we apply it to the life of the Christian today. This is spoken by God to his people in a very specific time, place and situation. What is God saying to the exiles? God is saying... God is saying that... I have a plan for you, Judean exile, sitting by the rivers of Babylon, weeping for your former home. And that plan is for you to submit to this exile and accept it. Uh, That plan is for you to survive and not die and to make a life in a foreign land. Because after 70 years, your children or your children's children will get to go home. Both comforting and potentially disheartening. For those hearing this letter read, but a reliable promise from a faithful God to a people who are, even though they thought they were lost, still part of his plan for his world, still his people. An encouraging reminder that God is God of all the world, of all the nations. He's God in Babylon, he's God in Jerusalem, he's God everywhere. So we must be very careful uh, taking verses like Jeremiah 29.11 and simply plugging it into our lives today and thinking, well, I wonder what wonderful plans God has for my life. How am I going to prosper? We need to see uh, how this is part of God's faithfulness to his people over time. And we can know that God has a plan for all of his people. At the time of the exile, it was a plan to bring them back so that the story of salvation could continue. Uh, judgment is not the end. Uh, there is a future and a hope beyond the sorrow of exile for the people of Judah. And yes, that hope carries through to all of God's people today. We get to see and be a part of the fulfillment of that continuing plan of salvation. Like Judah, all people uh, need God to give us a heart to seek him. The heart of the problem for all people is a problem of the heart. And because of sin, we need God's grace. We need him to do for us what we can't do, uh, to make it possible for us to follow him. And that's exactly what he does through Jesus. Jeremiah brings us back again and again to God's grace to us in Jesus. Uh, the final fulfillment of God's promise to Judah is in Jesus. In Jesus, we see that God's wrath against sin actually demonstrates his love for his people. In Jesus, wrath is turned away and that gracious salvation is received. Uh, Have a look at the way the Apostle Paul puts it, Romans 5, 
verses 6 to 9. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? In the depths of their sin, God promised to give Judah a heart to know him. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God's wrath against sin is lovingly for us uh, put on to Jesus. Uh, See how Paul puts it uh, in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God's love for his people causes him to divert his wrath. He still expresses his wrath against sin. He is a holy God and he must. He must punish sin. Sin makes him angry because he loves his people. He hates what sin does to his relationship with his people. And so he takes his wrath against sin on himself. And he raises up those who have sinned against him. Ephesians 2, verses 6 to 10. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God is a God of grace. Uh, We see that in Jeremiah and we see it in Romans, we see it in Ephesians, we see it throughout the Bible. Uh, We see it in our relationship with the God who has saved us. God is a God of grace. God is a God who gives us a heart to know him when by our own power we cannot know him. And as saved people, uh, we're to do good works in the world. God, uh, we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared for us. We live good lives as those who have been shown God's grace. We're uh, to love our enemies and, and pray for them. The Judean exiles were told to pray for Babylon. Uh, that must have been pretty hard to do. We're told to pray for our enemies. Jesus says in Matthew five forty four, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Well, not primarily, not primarily so that we'll prosper and flourish. The exiles in Babylon were to seek the good of their new home and prosper because the plan was for God to bring the people back from there. Uh, now, as God's people, we do good because... Well, God loved us when we were his enemies and his plan is to save the lost with his love. 
Paul says to Timothy uh, in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 4, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, the good that we do as Christians is primarily to, to love our enemies, to pray for the world around us, and, and to seek the salvation of the lost, because that's what God wants. We might consider ourselves foreigners and exiles, uh, in some way similar to the people of Judah in Babylon. The, the, this earth is not our final home. And the Apostle Peter, he urges his readers uh, to live good lives in this world, uh, like Paul, uh, ultimately so that God would be glorified. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We live good lives, we, we do good, we, we show love in the face of evil that even the pagans might glorify God on the day that Jesus returns. Uh, Jeremiah's letter to the exiles points us forward to uh, the fulfilment of God's plans. God is glorifying himself in his world. He does that through, both through judgment of sin and salvation from sin. And his saved people are to live for him uh, wherever they are. For the exiles, that meant settling down and prospering and growing because uh, the Babylonians would be defeated one day and uh, the people would return to the land God promised them. For Christians today, it means looking forward to the home God finally has in store for us and for all of his people. And living now in love for others just as God has loved us. If you're a Christian, God has overcome the problem of your heart. He has given you a heart to know him, to seek him, to love him. You've received his grace while you were still sinning against him, saved through no effort of your own. God is a God of grace. And now you're to seek the salvation of those around you so that God will be glorified. Do the good works God has planned in advance for you to do. Love your enemies. Pray for those who are lost so that God would be glorified. It's the command that all Jesus' disciples are left with in Matthew 28. Jesus does indeed have authority over all the earth and that is the arena within which we serve him. Even as we look forward to the home he will finally take us to. We can only do this because of God's grace to us. Uh, let's thank him for that grace. Let's pray. Please pray with me. Dear God, we praise you and thank you for your grace, for your loving mercy to a sinful people. We praise you because you are a merciful and gracious God. We praise you for the free gift of salvation. We praise you that in your love, you deal with the problem of sin, you 
pay the penalty for sin in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, that through his sacrifice for us, we can receive forgiveness. That you provided this salvation while we were still sinners, Lord. We praise you for this love and grace. We praise you that Jesus uh, did not just die for sin, but rose again and rules now from heaven and that as your people we have the hope of one day being with you forever because of Jesus. We praise you for all of this, Lord, and we ask that you help us, help us to live uh, as your people, help us to live lives that honour you as those who are saved, no longer controlled by sin, but who now have hearts to follow you. Help us to live as your people. Help us to live in ways which demonstrate uh, to the world around us your grace and mercy. And in your mercy, we ask that you would you would change more hearts, that you would bring more people to salvation, that you might be glorified. And we pray all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.